Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast with the cars are Alex Dykes, I'm Tim Masso. What's in today's episode? Well, we're talking about the new Lexus TX. What is it? Is it worth the money? What else could you get? What does it offer? We're talking And should about- we call it the Lextex? Ooh. I'm it, would you argue that the 500H is in the heart of TX? Ooh, I don't know. I interrupted you, though. Do continue. What, are, what else are we covering? Not a problem. Okay, so what we're going to do is talk about the TX. We're going to talk about the new rebate, which is the newest and most immediate form of the federal tax credit for alternative energy vehicles. We're going to talk about cars that got better within a generation. So cars that got mid-cycle updates or emergency updates that made them a whole lot better. There's the UAW strike, which is definitely in the news and an evolving story. We're going to tell you where it is right now and how we got to this point. Then finally, we're going to talk a little bit about autonomy, uh, specifically the new Blue Cruise, but also the different types of autonomy. Autonomy, hands-off and eyes-off and where you can get them. Alex, you've driven the Lexus TX. This is not the first three-row Lexus, but it is probably the most mm-hmm. important. What came before, and how does this improve on the type? Yeah, so Lexus has had the full-size three rows, of course. The GX was really the focus of uh, Lexus's marketing around, you want a three-row, you want a Lexus, that is the thing for you. Um, and honestly, I don't think it was a great fit. Uh, 20 years ago, it would have been fine back when we had, you know, the original Acura Isuzu thing that it competed with. We had some other body on frame things out there, but the industry has spoken and by and large, the vast majority of SUVs purchased today are unibody SUVs. And so, you know, this switch did really make a lot of sense. Lexus tried to meet people, you know, not halfway there, maybe a quarter of the way there with the Lexus RXL. The RXL is thankfully dead because it had next to the most useless third row uh, in the business. Actually, I think it was a really tough three-way race between the RXL, the Model Y third row, and the Mitsubishi Outlander third row. Both uh, or all three of those are very, very, very small. Um, And so now they've decided to give us the RX, regular midsize, two-row thing, theoretically competing ostensibly with... Uh, the BMW X5 and GLE. And now we have the Lexus TX, which is going to be the biggest unibody three-row luxury SUV in America. If you want something bigger, you're going to have to get Escalade, Navigator, or Wagoneer. Those are really the only three things that are going to be bigger in the third row. Okay, so first, the elephant in the room. Is this just a Grand or Grand Highlander? Uh, You know, I mean, it is in the same sense that MDX is a grander pilot, right? So uh, customers that are in a Grand Highlander and then in a Lexus TX are going to notice some family resemblance, especially in the geometry of the vehicle. But honestly, there is relatively little directly shared. So the sheet metal is different. The glass is different. Um, There are certain dimensions that have been pinched and prodded and poked around. The seats, by and large, are different. But there's no disguising that this is related to the Grand Highlander. And that is good and bad. If you're looking for an MDX and you want a really big third row, you want a real usable third row for actual humans, this is that vehicle. But if you were expecting that Lexus was going to cook up, I don't know, an X7 competitor, then yeah, no, you're not going to be happy with that. 
Fair enough. So now we're talking 116.1 inch wheelbase. Uh, we do have a lot more length compared to the RXL. That was 196.9. This is 203.1. Mm -hmm. How has that extra length been put to use versus the RXL? Is it all in the third row or is it in cargo? Is it split? It's second row, third row, and cargo. I would say relatively evenly split. You will definitely notice that even if you don't use the third row, the second row is bigger and roomier and boxier than the RX. And that's really the the, the theme of the TX is it's big and boxy. So uh, rather unusually, most often when we see a luxury conversion, so Traverse becomes XT6 or Pilot becomes MDX or Pathfinder becomes QX60, we see a huge reduction in the practicality and usability of the third row. Pilot, pretty healthy third row. MDX, that third row is really tight, even though it's the best in the segment. Um, it's the best seller, I should say. Let me rephrase that slightly, because the best in the segment, I would argue, is probably the Aviator, but even it gets a little bit of a reduction in usability versus um, the Explorer. The Grand Highlander versus TX, that's different. We actually get the same amount of headroom all the way across and almost the same cargo area. So that that rear end is just as boxy as in the Grand Highlander. Some folks were sad about that because they wanted it to be more differentiated. But if you actually want room in your third row, then that's the way you have to go. And, and I'm perfectly fine with the idea of Lexus just having a higher trim level interior exterior redesign on a Toyota platform. Mm -hmm. With the exception yeah. of the LS and some two-door sports coupes, historically, that's what Lexus has always been. So there's no problem there. Uh, there are a couple of different trim levels, and you're starting with about 55000 on the TX350. This is going to be a relatively modest turbocharged four-cylinder all-wheel drive or front-wheel drive. Yeah. It overlaps with a lot of loaded versions of possibly more interesting three-row mm -hmm. vehicles from Hyundai, Kia, and Mazda. So I see this as the least interesting. Moving up from there. Yeah. And we should talk yeah. about that one just a, that. another second because it is uh, it is $5,000 more than a Acura MDX. So it is pretty dear and it is the slowest entry in that segment by far. I will say that I come across seeing the TX as a very logical play for Lexus, but it's not going to set anyone's hair on fire, including ardent Lexus fans. That model, uh, the base trim, 0 to 60 in 8 seconds. Yeah, and here's the other thing that really stinks. Like Once you start talking about 55, dollars $57,000 vehicles, you're talking about loaded Mazda CX-90s. And from where I stand, that's a very competitive offering in the price range, especially with all the options you can get once you start adding. Yeah, the tricky there's a kind of a tricky thing, of course, to the CX90. That would be obviously no Lexus logo. That's yeah. really what you're paying for a lot in the in the Lexus is Lexus reliability, the Lexus logo. Also, though, the third row is considerably roomier in the Grand Highlander and in the TX. Because of the rear-wheel drive inline six design of the CX90, it may be as big on the outside. But on the inside, it actually is way closer to a regular Highlander. So that third row is pretty darn small in the CX-90. Also, I have to be honest, um, the lack of torque converter in that automatic transmission, not the best idea for Mazda because it comes across as really rough around the edges. And that's worth mentioning because the transmission in the TX350 is a little bit different from what you actually get on the other TXs. You get an 8-speed when you go with mm -hmm. the base engine. The other two, they're hybridized. They have 6-speed automatic transmissions. So what do you think? Is is 8 going to be, I guess it all depends on tuning, but in your experience, do you feel like it hunts around a lot or it optimizes those 8-speeds? 
I think the eight speed is probably my favorite transmission in that group. Um, I think that the six speed hybrid, because there are four different uh, hybrids that Lexus is using in this segment between RX and, and TX, uh, just lumping them all together yeah. there um, because they use the 2.4 liter turbo. Uh, in the TX, they then jump up to the 2.4 liter turbo plus a single motor um, and they a regular six-speed automatic. Then from there, in the plug-in hybrid, we have the return of the V6, which we had all expected really was going to die. But then it uses the planetary power split system, so basically a supersized Prius drivetrain. No stepped automatic transmission at all. No CVT in the traditional sense at all, but that's going to give you the best performance in the TX lineup at about 400 horsepower or so. If you get the Lexus RX, then we also have the option of a regular 2.5 liter um, hybrid system. So pretty similar to what we find in the uh, RAV4 hybrid, for instance, that's also pretty smooth. And I think that's the big thing that customers will notice. The, the base drivetrain feels very, very normal, very much like the competition, albeit slower. We then find the regular hybrid system in that model, the 2.4 liter turbo hybrid, that feels a little rough around the edges. It has all of the sort of disadvantages of some of the competition's hybrid systems, namely Volvo and some of those competitors that are using similar uh, drivetrain styles, but none of those advantages. So it doesn't have as much power as those competitors. It's actually not as efficient as some of those competitors. And because Lexus has really not had this system for very long, it also is not as polished. And then from there, we go into the plug-in hybrid system, which I think is something Lexus does extraordinarily well. And the V6 is fantastic. It's one of the few actually left in sort of this particular segment. It's the only one left in the Lexus lineup in their crossovers this way. Um, and it is very smooth, very powerful, very peppy, but not quite as peppy as an XC90. That is worth mentioning. Before we jump to the competition, let's just do a quick tour of the price points in these different power plants. You're starting at $55,000 to get four cylinders and two or all-wheel drive with the TX350. It's not terribly economical, as you're going to get a combined 23 miles per gallon. Now, maybe you can beat that in the real world, but that is not flattering overall. You'll get 27 combined if you step up to the TX 500 F Sport, which is $69,000. Now, this is what would be called the hybrid max power plant in a Crown or a Grand Highlander. This is going to be 366 horsepower versus 275 in the standard four. It's going to be 339 pound-feet. It's going to be all-wheel drive. And somewhat oddly, this is considered to be the performance model. We'll, we'll kind of get back to what that means in a second. But 29 miles per gallon in hybrid mode is what you get from the TX550H+. Now, this is the plug-in hybrid, 18.1 kilowatt hour battery, a respectable 33-mile range. And again, it will get that 29 mile per gallon all-gas hybrid fuel economy rating. But now we're talking much more money as yeah. this starts at 75000 and it goes right up to the cusp of 80000 Yep. And none of the hybrid models will have seven seats. That's the one thing I think the TX is missing is A, the hybrid systems all have six seats only, no seventh seat, and no hybrid, no TX at all will have eight seats. Um, and I was really hoping that the TX would somehow resurrect an eighth seat in some model because there really is no competition to that. And by the time you've worked your way all the way down to six seats, there's no differentiation between TX and an XC90. Yes, it's going to have more room in the third row and a little bit more headroom in the third row as well and a bigger cargo area. 
but it's not going to seat any more people. And um, I think that really would have been a, a handy differentiator for Lexus to have had not just a hybrid in this segment, a reliable entry in the segment, a roomy entry in the segment, but one that also seated uh, a larger number of people. If you need to seat seven or you need to seat eight, by and large, other than the lower end trims, you really are looking at a full-size SUV still. So you still will have to navigate or, or escalate or something like that. Scratching my head trying to remember, you're better at this than I am, but does a CX-90 hybrid offer a plug and eight seats? Not eight seats, but it does offer a plug and seven. Okay. okay. That is my understanding. I can I can double check that. So now the th other thing is, well, Alex double checks that uh, just in terms of where we are with the TXs here, uh, these are going to be competitive with vehicles like the XC90 Recharge from Volvo. Uh, if you are looking at lower price TXs, you are going to be looking at your Hyundai Palisade, your Kia Telluride, your Mazda CX90. And although I'm not totally sure I agree with the comparison, I have seen a lot of people saying the likes of a BMW X7 might be considered an alternative to some oh, versions. So you you can TX. get a CX90 in some trims with eight seats and the plug. So oh. there you go. All right. So that's one more option to add to our list. Mm -hmm. So Alex, the most obvious comparison here, because it's the most interesting, is the flagship model, uh, plug-in hybrid versus the Volvo XC90 Recharge, where you're going to get real horsepower, 455. Right. You're going to get real driving range with a respectable plug-in battery. Uh, it is a very premium vehicle. It is not new to the market, so I don't know if age counts against it. But how would you consider that to match up against the 550? Yeah, I'm I'm interested in that that comparison because personality-wise, the two vehicles sound very similar. Design-wise, there's an electric motor on the back. We got the engine and the uh, the electric motors up front. The battery packs are not far off one another in terms of size and range. The Lexus is going to have slightly shorter electric range, slightly better fuel economy, but notably lower performance. The XC90 is shockingly quick, actually, in this uh, generation of the drivetrain. Uh, we'll talk about this, I guess, in, in the way products develop a little bit later in the episode. But one thing that Volvo has continually done well is year-on-year -year refinements of their systems. So they've had several different battery packs, a number of different electric motors, and actually two different engines. They all all called that combo T8. But this system started out rough around the edges and less powerful. Now, pretty darn smooth, decent EV range and capability and 455 horsepower, nice and nice and fast. The XC90 is an awful lot smaller, though. I would say the interior feels more premium. It feels more special. It feels more comfortable, more luxurious, and all of that. I also like the exterior design. I think it's aged extremely well, but it's not as roomy. Um, the market's responded pretty well. If you're looking at luxury three-row vehicles, the XC90 is the second best seller in this segment below the Acura MDX. And I think with reason, it's it's definitely been a solid alternative to an X5 with three rows or an Audi Q7 with three rows, etc. Um, kind of the, the sideways competitor that not too many people are shopping for, but I think is a good sideways option would be the Lincoln Aviator plug-in hybrid. It's just about as roomy. It is a little bit smaller on the inside because of its rear-wheel drive nature, but there is a plug-in hybrid version available as well. And by all accounts, it may actually be a little bit less expensive than the plug-in hybrid TX. Now, one of the complaints that's often leveled against early versions of the XC90 Recharge, as well as the Aviator hybrid, uh, plug-in hybrid, is that sometimes the powertrain can feel a little bit disjointed, like 
it's not quite as refined as it could be. I've heard some people saying that at least the four-cylinder hybrid max version of the TX has some of that coarseness to it. For sure. Uh, and there's a logical reason. It's just the design. Okay. Um, you know, the the four-cylinder hybrid max system, uh, which is also being called the direct four uh, system on the Lexus side, it combines a regular automatic transmission with a single electric motor up front, electric motor on the back, etc. So the exact same driving conditions and driving nature of the competitive hybrid systems are going to be seen in this Lexus system. When you're regenerative braking, the regen brake potential is going to be reduced versus some of Lexus's other designs. You're going to feel the transmission shifting as you're regenerative braking, as you're decelerating. Uh, when you're accelerating, it's going to be very eager to shift to gasoline mode because the motor is not as powerful as it is in the typical Lexus hybrid systems that we've seen up until recently. And so it is going to feel very different in personality to the plug-in hybrid model. The plug-in hybrid model builds off of that classic Lexus hybrid system. So very smooth power delivery, CVT-like feel at some times, but strong EV potential, good regenerative braking with no sort of funky feelings in there. Um, but I think the competition has, at this point in time, had more time to develop their software. So BMW, Mercedes, Volvo, those competitive plug-in hybrid systems and hybrid systems, design-wise, they're very similar to the turbo hybrid from Lexus but they've had years more time to develop that software. Okay, and I think there's a little bit of, there is something to be said for the, the TX500 because it is considered to be the performance model in this lineup, even though it's mm -hmm. not the most powerful. It's got yeah. the option and of- not the fastest, oddly. Yeah. So tell me, what does it mean that it is described as an F-Sport? And it's the only one that is in this lineup. Yeah, so for them, they're saying that it has slightly different steering tuning, and, and they kept saying, you know, keep in mind it's not an F and it's not the fastest model. Um, so the 500 is going to be the one where you can get rear wheel steering, so it is going to feel a little bit tighter on some roads, but it doesn't get wider tires, so there's no extra grip. Um, it is heavier than the base model, so you are going to feel it. It does feel big and heavy. It gets adaptive dampers, so that kind of helps compensate for that a little bit. It does feel, I would say, a hair more nimble than the regular TX, but it does not feel sporty for this segment at all. Um, the F-Sport is, is somewhat, st some styling, a little bit of improvements here and there, but it's a very minor tweak around the edges. So if you want something more dynamic feeling, then essentially all of the European options will be more dynamic. Yeah, I think more Audi S line than Audi S and definitely not RS. But it is important to remember that you cannot get the four-wheel steering and the adaptive dampers on the 550. So yep. if maneuverability, if driving excitement is even mildly on your radar and you must yeah. have the TX, th this might be the one to consider. And I don't know also, if that is... Oh, yeah, it also an odd twist. The plug-in hybrid can't get the panoramic moonroof. How do you feel about that? Well, I think... When you're priced at the top of the line, you should offer top of the line features. I, I feel like if any version has it, it should be that one. Part of me really honestly believes the TX was a little phoned in because they're, the top end model lacks some of these features. The most logical reason is that they didn't want to do a different payload suspension package. So by the time you've plug in hybrided and you've, you know, try and add the seventh seat, etc., you would be over the payload envelope for the suspension. So they would have had to have designed a different spring setup and damper setup, maybe even different attachment points. And so the way to get back to the payload envelope was to start throwing features out 
Um, also odd, no wood trim is offered in any level of TX. I, that, that to me feels like a mistake. I, I remember even when BMW interiors of the 2000s and 2010s were really well screwed together, some of them solid black, minimal wood, mm -hmm. they felt cold, even when they were yeah. well made. And I get that too with the TX. It's well made. I'm sure reliability is going to be great. The materials are not cheap, but it feels spartan it, it feels cold it feels almost institutional yeah. especially and all the interior colors color. are quite dark so most of the interior is quite dark uh, as far as the available color palette there are uh, a few different uh, interior color options but 90 percent of what you're going to see on the dealer lot is quite dark and especially for a brand that has really had a reputation for delivering acres of really well done wood and wood that doesn't bubble or crack or peel like some of the competitive wood trims did in the 1990s. That was really what what Lexus pushed hard on uh, is that they had wood trim, they had it everywhere, and you could park in the sun in Houston and it wouldn't look like crap in five years. Um, but now we actually don't find wood trim in the new GX either, interestingly enough. So Lexus seems to be going in a different and kind of austere direction. I'm not sure I'm a fan of that um, because I think it doesn't really help the parallels between Grand Highlander any. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I mean, here's the thing. If you just want to get the same basic package, you get the Hybrid Max and the Grand Highlander for under 60 grand loaded up every option. So that's mm -hmm. on the table. I'd say if you're interested in a warmer interior between 60,000 and 80,000, in this class, you really have to be considering an Audi Q7, which is a pretty formidable competitor. It's not going to be as big inside, but if you want something that feels properly luxurious, at mm -hmm. least for the first two rows of passengers, it will deliver. Yeah. And if you want something that's more comfortable, the Volvo XC90 is definitely more comfortable. Um, but on the pricing side of things, you know, we're, it's really pushing up against X7, which is very comfortable as well. It's not quite as big in the third row, but the X7, based on what we've seen so far from the, especially the F-Sport hybrid and likely on the plug-in hybrid, it should be considered a logical competitor. Yeah, this is, this is a little bit of a problematic vehicle because on the one hand, it's probably going to be very reliable. It's probably going to have decent resale. It's going to have the Lexus name behind it. It does give you an extra year of warranty versus something like a Grand Highlander, which gets three years, 36. This gets four years, 48. So there is that on the table. And I do believe that that will mean something to someone. And I, I think the Lexus customer who's looking for more room than an RX is going to look at this. I'm not sure that the European buyer or the American body on frame truck fan is necessarily going to cross shop this vehicle. The trickiest competitor for me, I think, to be rational is the MDX. Uh, the top competitor to Lexus RX decade after decade has been the Acura MDX, even though it's two row versus three row. That cross shop is very, very strong, uh, according to both manufacturers. Both Lexus and Acura say that those models are the, the top one cross shopped. Um, and that, I think, is tricky because for this price, you could get a much faster V6 10-speed automatic MDX with a torque vectoring rear axle. Yeah, you're going to get a little bit less room in the back, but it's not going to seat any fewer people, to be in, to be odd. Uh, it's kind of weird that the TX doesn't actually have an extra seat. And then you could also get a MDX Type S with real wood, um, sorry, well, real wood uh, happens in the MDX, I should say, but in the Type S, you get the extra power, you get that turbocharged six-cylinder 
Um, you have much better performance, the torque vectoring axle, adaptive dampers, all of that. So it is weird, actually, that Acura seems to be the more dynamic option here. And the customer yep. is not seemingly having that much difference. Statistically, your Acura might be a little less reliable, but I don't know any customer that says, you know, oh, that Acura, it's, it's unreliable. So I'll buy the other one instead. No, and I think also, if we're totally honest, in an era when families are getting smaller, it's always struck me as ironic that we're seeing more and more three-row vehicles. So I, I think there's almost a status symbol factor to having three rows of seats like oh look how popular we are we have so many friends but for the most part you can be driving around with yourself and your 1.5 kid and the mdx will be fine and sure it's shorter in wheelbase and it's shorter overall and if you want you can option it up to you know like type s advance all the way to like the cusp of 76 77,000. but you're going to get that v6 that you get in the tx 550h without any of the encumbrance of the motors or the battery and the weight that comes with them and i'm wondering sort of if maybe the weight of all that crap is why you can't get a bunch of options in the tx that you can get in the 500 the tx 550 doesn't have all that heavy stuff because it's already heavy the mdx is not so i do think that's a valid cross shop um, so that's definitely something on the table. I guess maybe to mitigate against the price, this is this is a question. Can you get any kind of federal tax rebate or credit based on the content and assembly of the TX, which is made in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the plug-in hybrid, we don't know yet because uh, the battery is not going to be built in North America. We know that part. Where everything comes from, we don't know. I would say statistically it's unlikely because you would have to be in the right tax bracket, which probably is going to exclude someone looking at an over $80,000 plug-in hybrid. And then there's the top-end price of the plug-in hybrid as well, which may be out of that, that pricing zone depending on options and what that pricing actually looks like. If it stays under 80, you're golden. If you're married or you're head of the household, you're probably golden on income. Uh, so it's definitely possible. But with the battery made overseas, the car itself's made in Indiana. Uh, you're going to be looking at a maximum of $3,750. But uh, Alex, before we parlay that into our next topic, final word on the TX series. We have plenty of content on Auto Buyer's Guide. Where can people find more about this? Yeah, so they can find us over on the Facebook page, the Auto Buyer's Guide over on the Facebooks, Twitter, Instagram, all those other social places. And of course, the mainline YouTube channel where we have tons of videos on the TX and the TX Plug-in Hybrid and the TX Hybrid, etc. Yes, so that's where you can find a lot more, including in-depth dives into the TX models. So the EV tax credit, which was established in 2022 with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, this was seen as a way to get people into EVs, both new and used. And there are some terms that apply, but the biggest disincentive to taking advantage was the fact that this is a tax rebate, which means you have to have a sufficient tax liability because it's not a refundable credit. But then you also have to wait until you file your taxes. Well, just recently, we have a new system. The IRS has set up a rebate mechanism whereby the dealer can give you the 7,500 or 3,750 at the time of purchase. And then via treasury, they are reimbursed within, I believe, 72 hours. Right. So Alex, I've seen a study that came out, I think it was from, I want to say George Washington University, but don't hold me to that, that people prefer a point of sale rebate over a tax credit to the point that they would actually accept less money 
in order to oh, get yes. this one. Yeah, indeed, because it removes some of the uncertainty. There are other details that we are still waiting for because the IRS has not released complete guidance on this. And we mind you don't know which vehicles will qualify under the newer and more stringent requirements uh, for batteries and manufacturing and material sourcing for 2024. But uh, we do know that dealers will be able to sign up with the IRS and dealers will have to do that step. So you are likely going to be finding dealers in your area uh, that are competing against one another. And one dealer has signed up and is able to give you that point of sale credit and other dealers do not. Uh, and the rationale behind that and the, the reason this seems to be likely is that when we had cash for clunkers, if you recall, way yeah. back when, um, a lot of dealers say that the IRS was far too slow in getting them the credit back. And so they were out the car, they were out the cash, and then they waited up to 60 to 90 days for the IRS to actually fund that deal. The IRS says this is not a problem. And like you said, they're promising to do this within just a few days, but some dealers seem to have a bad taste in their mouth from last time. So there appear to be a few major auto groups uh, that have said they're gonna wait and see, at least at the beginning, to see how that's gonna go down. Uh, the other question that remains to be seen is, is the IRS truly turning this into a refundable credit where even if you don't have that minimum tax liability, you get the full credit value. And that is what it seems to be. We're still waiting on some of this guidance, but it does appear that this credit is going to transition to a refundable credit because the mechanism honestly would be a bit tricky. So you go buy an electric car, you get the $7,500 tax credit, dealer gets paid for that. You file your taxes and have to fill out all the forms. But what if you don't actually meet the requirements that tax year? Are you then obligated to pay the IRS back? It appears the answer is no, but we're waiting for guidance. Again, I, I'm I'm thinking based on what I've read that we just don't know, because I've seen some sources that have said, yes, uh, you may have to give the money back if you don't meet. Generally, you know how much the vehicle is going to cost. So there's yep. no mystery about that up front. But in terms of how much money you make in your circumstances and your tax filing status, Maybe you could have to pay this back, um, but that's a real game changer if this becomes mm -hmm. a refundable tax credit, because there are plenty of people who do not have $7,500 worth yep. of tax liability. Quite a few people don't pay an income right. tax. Um, it appears that the, the legislation packet that was given out by the IRS says that the income tax limit or sorry, earnings limits will still apply. So you okay. do have to certify that you will not earn more than this amount that year. They don't say what happens if you do go over it. Or the other question is, say you're under that income tax cap, can you carry over the credit? Is it refundable? Those are things that we don't know, whether it's going to transition to some sort of carryover credit or a refundable one. Um, we probably will know more around December, sadly. The IRS is very slow at this guidance, but it is entirely possible that the guidance may not even be complete by the time this program starts in January 1. Okay, so if you're the last NFT hero still standing and you're sitting on your pile of cash, there's long been, well, as long as there's been an Inflation Reduction Act, there has been a leasing loophole. So are you now able to get a $130,000 Escalade IQ on a lease and get the full rebate at the point of sale? both leasing a vehicle over the price limit and receiving the credit that you should not be getting for that vehicle. Yeah, essentially the leases function in a different world. So because a business is purchasing the vehicle, 
EV, EV tax credits follow regular business acquisition rules. So uh, the, there's no limit. Uh, they're they're carryoverable. Um, they don't meet the same assembly location requirements, etc. So it does appear that that is going to continue the same way that it has been before. But it is important for people to remember that not all companies pass that tax credit along because not all companies may get it. So if you are, for instance, a captive lease arm of an auto manufacturer and you're, that, that captive lease arm is a separate IRS corporation, it's entirely logical that that company does not want that division to have any tax liability. So that company may not be paying taxes in their own right. It may just be rolled up to the parent company, at which point those leasing credits to them don't exist because you actually have to have a lease li a, a tax liability to get the credit, just like a regular person does. So if the business never pays taxes, it's not a thing, right? Um, and if you are an external entity, then things, you know, fall on either side. So say you're Stellantis, they don't have a captive finance arm. It's Santander Bank uh, that does their financing in North America. So where does that fall? We just don't know because they don't sell enough uh, vehicles for this to be much of a concern. Right now, they are passing along that tax credit, logically, because Santander has a tax liability in the US, so they kind of want it. That kind of works for them. What will that be long term? We don't know. Um, and will there be some sort of financial sharing arrangement where if you are an external finance company like Santander, maybe Stellantis wants a cut of that $7,500 tax credit. And so there's actually going to be some massaging and negotiation between companies about how that could work. Um, the, the door is still uh, still open and we don't we don't know who's there. So in other words, you might be able to get a point of sale rebate on your Tycon Turbo mm -hmm. as we just don't know yet. Yep. On the other end of the scale, though, used cars, uh, if you have a vehicle that is $25,000 or less, you can get 30% of the price up to $4,000 back in the form of rebate for a used car. So definitely check that out as well if you're shopping for a used vehicle, especially a used Nissan Leaf or Chevy Bolt that's likely to fall into that bracket. The one tricky bit that we should mention there is uh, it, it does have to be purchased from a dealer and yes. different income caps uh, apply to that one. So uh, eligible dealer income caps are different uh, and you cannot do more than one used EV every two years, I believe it is. So different rules apply. That is very important because you can't buy the car from your brother and book a $4,000 credit. So yes, it has to be a licensed dealer accredited by your state. Okay. Um, now, in terms of the one X factor, Alex did mention that nobody really understands the ramp up of the sourcing requirements for subassemblies and raw materials that are going into batteries right. are regarded as two different things in that regard. Yes. So basic, easy stuff, 55000 is the price cap for cars, 80000 for trucks and SUVs, no limit on leases. If you make three hundred grand married, two twenty five as head of a household or 150,000 mm -hmm. individual, those are the caps after which you are not eligible. And if yep. the car is made in the US, you qualify for potentially the whole thing. If the car is made overseas or in Mexico, the most you could possibly get is 3,750. No one understands how the battery sourcing rules are gonna work, even yeah. the auto industry. The manufacturers have been told how the calculations need to be done but they have to get appropriate sourcing documents and they have to crunch the numbers and it has to be submitted and reviewed by the IRS uh, to be approved. 
uh, which is why it took Volkswagen quite a while to really get everything dialed in on the ID4. They really had to get a hold of all the supply chain. I would assume this next time around, it should be faster for manufacturers to certify those details because they've had experience. They've They've done it for one year already, and those those numbers and increments are going to ratchet up. But I would also not be surprised if there were next to no vehicles that qualified for the full credit, uh, because we soon have the Chinese material exclusion. Uh, so critical materials cannot come at all from China or Russia or all those other selected uh, countries out there. That is going to be a big problem for EVs for graphite, because a lot of graphite is used in EVs. And right now, the biggest industrial producer by far in the world is China. And there doesn't seem to be much production coming up in the U.S. Uh, or any of our allied countries that would be also on the acceptable list to try and compensate for that lack of Chinese production. So uh, that could be a problem. Yeah, as Alex mentioned, these requirements do ramp up by the year, and the Chinese exclusion is a very, very big looming factor. And frankly, I don't think this is going to be resolved until there are enough old EVs going to the recycler that there can be a recycling stream of reclaimed materials. Like if you told automakers that all their cars next year have to be built of steel made from freshly mined iron ore, it would be the end of the world. But the car industry is so old that recycling of copper and glass and plastic and steel and aluminum, it's very common and it's a major input to the production process. I don't think we get around all of these sourcing issues for batteries until enough of them are being recycled that that can displace some of the raw mining. So now we're kind of, uh, we're, we're kind of done on the rebate. I think we need to talk about current events here, things that are unfolding literally on a daily basis. The UAW strike. Alex, 146,000 UAW auto workers in this country, probably 160,000 other that are not union. They went on strike September 15th. Their contract expired on the 14th. What is it that they want? And let's then unpack how likely they are to get it and whether this is going to have an impact on the consumer. Yeah, they, they want some things that on the surface have been made to sound pretty extraordinary. They want a fairly decent pay raise, but the bigger change is in the two-tiered pay structure that a lot of UAWs have uh, or UAW employees have been under. So under that structure, employees hired after the last debacle, we'll just call it that, um, are on a much different pay tiered scale than older legacy employees, and they want them to be more or less even. Uh, they also want a lot of hourly wage workers that are not UAW employees to be UAW bargain uh, covered, bargaining covered. Um, and they really want some changes to the way joint ventures are structured under things. Um, so for instance, if you are General Motors and you have a joint venture between you and LG to produce batteries for your next generation of vehicles, since this is not a 100% General Motors owned division, those employees working at that battery factory or the motor factory or the whatever factory are not in the UAW collective bargaining arrangement. So they could be paid an awful lot less, et cetera. Um, the the background backdrop here is that a lot of manufacturers have had record profits. Um, their CEOs are being paid quite a lot, let's just say. Um, and companies like Stellantis have announced multi-billion dollar stock buybacks that even the shareholders don't really seem to be too keen on. So there definitely seems to be a lot of cash rolling around exactly where the cash is going. You know, we'll just have to see how these play out. 
Yeah, so a couple of things there that have been bandied about in the media that are, I don't want to say misrepresented, but definitely misunderstood. This idea that they want a four-day work week. What they want is for overtime to start after 32 hours. That doesn't literally mean they won't show up for the fifth day of the week. It means they'll work 40 hours and eight of those will be credited as overtime. So that's what that's all about. In terms of the 46% pay hike with 20% up front, this is basically them rolling back a decade plus of not having a regular cost of living adjustment. So if you look at inflation over the last couple of years, you can see how important that is. So it seems monumental to be asking for almost a 50% pay hike, but they're mostly asking for back wages to be repaid as though they had a cost of living adjustment included. The tiers, that's a real thing. And that's not just a, that's not just a thing in automaking. Tiers are present everywhere you have unions and everywhere you have workers. And some of the lower tier salaries are sufficiently low that I worked it out in over 52 weeks of the year. Some of these people are making $29,000, $31,000, $32,000 a year, and they have a fairly high level of training that is inconsistent with fast food wages. And let, let's call it, that's that's basically what it is. That's a fast food wage, 29 grand a year. Right. Uh, some of the things they're probably not going to get, they're probably not going to get all the money they want. I doubt they're going to get overtime after 32 hours worked. I do think that they're probably going to get an adjustment in pay and probably somewhere between 20 and 30% compared to what they're making. I don't know if they'll get it all up front, but tiers are not just about pay. Uh, tiers are also about benefits where you have pre-2007 UAW workers who are going to retire with a defined benefit pension plan, and they're going to retire with a fully funded health plan. And if you are in the lower tiers, you don't get that. Another thing that's true about the lower tiers is that you have a lifetime cap on how much you can actually make. And right now it seems that's somewhere between fifty-six dollars and $58,000. That's after 10 to 15 years. It's also a slower upward march towards the top of what you can make in a lower tier. So that's how to understand that. I don't think that the UAW is going to be able to reclaim a defined benefit pension plan. I think from the time they, they gave up pensions for new hires, uh, that was pretty much a thing of the past. I don't see pensions making a comeback in any industry nationally. I can't see why it would start yeah. here. I can't see that coming back. Um, you know, we get I get asked a lot about, you know, how do I feel about, you know, the strike, et cetera. I will say that for me personally, I think adjustment or partial elimination of the tiers would make a great deal of sense. I don't know if I would go all in on the entire cost of living adjustment for this back period of time. Not every employee out there has had a cost of living adjustment commensurate to the increase in cost of living over the last decade, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I could say I, I would like it if that was the case, but that's not the case for the average American. Um, but I do agree that that. Um, you know, raising those, raising and eliminating some of those lower tiers would make sense because if you have two people doing the same job, they should be paid roughly the same amount of money. And you could say, yeah, you know, we have the defined pension benefits that are effectively a difference. And I'm fine with that part because that that's not something that modern industry does anymore. Um, but the baseline pay being dramatically different for the dude next to you that's screwing bolts in the same car because he was hired 30 days before you were, that just is weird. Yeah, and in in the manufacturing industry nationally, average hourly pay is about twenty seven dollars an hour, 
And that's pretty much the maximum of what someone in a lower tier could make after about 15 years. So I would say that this contract is really about the lower tiers because you're going to see fewer and fewer pre-2007 workers over time. They've already got that pension, the defined benefit health plan. That, that's not going to go away for them. And they don't have a whole lot of earning years left or seniority to gain. So this is really about the lower tiers making it up to somewhere between let's say like 60 and $80,000 a year at the peak of their career. They're not going to get the $100,000 a year thing that's been bandied in the media. They're going to get a peak earning potential somewhere between 60 and 80,000 a year. And I think they're looking for something better than like a 401k in terms of retirement options. I don't think they're going to get that. Uh, I, I do think ultimately what's going to happen is they're going to get somewhere between 20 and 30% it's not going to be upfront. It's going to be phased in over several years. I say they get a 10% to 15% raise upfront, and the rest of it phases in over four to seven years throughout the life of the contract. Uh, and that's right about where Ford is right now. I think Ford is offering, I want to say, 23 to 25 as of today, which is October 19th. And I don't think they're going to move much further beyond that. Now, the way this is working in terms of the mechanics of the strike is that the UAW started by pulling about 13,000 workers off the line at production plants and parts distribution warehouses back on September 15th. And rather than in the past, where the UAW would typically target GM because it's the biggest, strike at GM, write up a contract, and then base the Chrysler and Ford contracts on that, you're looking at a rolling strike where more people strike over time at ever more valuable plants, but it also occurs across all three automakers simultaneously. So it's not as if they're going to try to make an example of one and use that as the basis for the next two contracts. Uh, also, the strike is becoming more expensive, not just because of duration, but because recently Ford, which was not included in the initial walk-off, um, they lost the Kentucky truck plant, which makes the Super Duty, the Navigator, and the Ex Expedition. I think that's $25 billion a year plant. That plant is bigger than Marriott International, Nordstrom, and Southwest Airlines. If it were a company by itself, it would be bigger than all three of those individually. So that's a big gaping wound. And what you're gonna see at Stellantis and GM is the same thing. Full-size yeah. truck lines are going to stop. Mm -hmm. I mean, fortunately for them at the moment, as long as it's not a long, long stop, it might might not be too bad because there are half-ton trucks starting to build up on dealer lots. Maybe That's that was fair. in preparation for this, but uh, but yeah, long-term, this could be a problem. Um, yeah. And I know that some folks were asking earlier about how average wages you know, pair up big three versus the competition, et cetera. So uh, as of earlier this year, Daimler-Benz actually has the highest per hour labor cost uh, in the U.S. Apparently at their production facility, uh, they average about um, seven or eight dollars an hour more than the big three. Interestingly, and, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't realize, is that the big three don't all pay exactly the same wage. It's not like UAW bargains and they say this position is $65,000 a year or $60 an hour or whatever. Um, Stellantis actually has the lowest wage costs of the three for whatever reason in their collective bargaining. And GM pays currently the most uh, with the $58 hour uh, average labor cost, Ford 57 and, and uh, the Fiat Chrysler Stellantis conglomerate at 48. So um, kind of an odd, you know, level of, of, uh, of tiering going on there. Um, and generally speaking, pretty much everybody else in the U S pays less, including Tesla. And there was some debate about that. I saw somewhere Tesla likes to bandy about the stock options, 
um, that they give employees here and there, but that is not part of the base pay. So actual pay is lower. Yeah, I would say that Tesla, from everything I've read, seems to have a hourly labor cost all up of about $45 an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's considerably lower, and it's yeah. been dropping as they move positions to Texas and pay less than they did in California. Yeah, it's that is the lowest, by the way. Toyota's higher, Benz is higher, Volvo, Korean, German brands, other Japanese-owned factories, it's all higher. The, the lowest is 45 an hour at Tesla. And as Alex mentioned, that is going to drop a little bit, especially as they ramp up Cybertruck production and more people come online. Uh, I think one important point to note is that the UAW would argue that there's a floor under the wages at these non-union plants because of the threat of unionization. So it's that, that yeah. has to be seen as part of the frame when you look at the benefits and wages like Daimler or Toyota, and they seem comparable at some level. They would be a whole lot less comparable if there weren't the bogey of the UAW extant in the industry. Most likely. Yeah. And also remember that uh, cost of living in some of those locations is different than it is going to be in the UAW plant locations, especially if they're they're in, in Michigan. Um, so your intrinsic cost of living in an income tax-free state or just a low cost of living state like the Carolinas, it's going to intrinsically be different. So you could have roughly comparable wages with a slightly smaller dollar figure. Yeah, which is why you're, you're pretty hard up in Fremont making Tesla yeah. wages. That's if you're working on the line, that's probably the most challenging situation. Now, to bring this back to the consumer side, people have asked me, you're going to have trouble getting cars. And my answer is emphatically no. There's so many foreign owned automakers that are still building cars. There are so much inventory on domestic automakers' lots right now. And because this is a rolling strike, the full effects haven't been helped or haven't been felt. And a lot of plants are still running, even. For the Detroit three. So no, I don't think there'll be any shortage. Yep. Vehicles that have improved in one generation. Alex, sometimes you can pull the cookies out of the fire, so to speak. And that appears to be the case with several vehicles we're going to talk about now. Alex, start us off. What vehicle within the currently offered generation has gotten a whole lot better since launch? I would say the biggest one, especially the highest volume one, would be the General Motors pickup trucks, which are now now on strike. Um, the, the Silverado and the Sierra launched in this generation with, I think, solid looking exteriors on the, on the, the Sierra, questionable looking exteriors on the Chevy, and truly dreadful interiors. Um, fun story, I was sitting in the GMC Sierra at the launch event. Uh, I was driving back from uh, where I was filming the vehicle. It was a really long drive. I was in the car for three hours with the interior designer of that generation of uh, of Sierra at Silverado. And uh, he, he conversation wandered along for a really long time, as, as happens when you're in the middle of nowhere, Canada. And uh, he's like, so what do you really, really think of the interior? And I said, well, <clears throat> have you uh, have you been inside the Ram truck? I think think we were all surprised that Ram Ram made a really nice interior and and it's really nice. Um, and the GM guy is like, oh, you, you don't think our interior is as nice as the Ram? And I I thought I was going to run off the road because I had to turn my head over to see if he was kidding. And I'm just like the slow turn, like what? Have you been in it? And that is a shocking thing. He said no. Okay, that's genuinely frightening. That's that's like Roger and me frightening. 
But also, it makes sense. Because if you had been in there, you would have seen that your interior was a problem. Uh, and that is probably why they did the emergency refresh on the interior. And they actually did make it. And I think it is now a really close tie, depending on your personal preferences, between the interior of the Chevy and the Ram. But the combination of Chevy's newer software and really nice interior parts, I think, puts that interior over the top for me. Yeah, and it was a transformation. You didn't get it on the lowest trim levels, but on yeah. most of them, you got that, better true. materials. You got a bigger center touchscreen, 12.3 inches. You got a center console shifter that looked like what Ford and Ram had had for years. Uh, you got more of a horizontal emphasis, and it looked upscale. It looked expansive, yeah. full width, designed for the, the shape of the inside of the vehicle. Whereas the previous thing, even if you went out and got a Silverado High Country and paid top dollar, yeah. You looked like you had a piece of melting plastic stretched out over the dashboard. It had this nasty, saggy vertical emphasis. It had also, a really yeah. strange look, yeah. And and the materials quality was just dreadful in that that model. I mean, it was bad, very, very bad. And the whole thing got better. Like the instrument, the instrument binnacle became a 12.3 inch screen. The touch screen on the center stack became 13.4 inches, almost Tesla levels. There were a lot more physical buttons for things like climate control. And like Alex mentioned, everything was gross to touch on the first version. Whereas in the redesign, they thought more about soft coatings, uh, rubberized switches, making everything feel good, not repulsive to touch. Um, open pour wood now available. Um, super crews now available, like giving yep. people the option to make it even richer. And, and just harmonious too. So that's the, that was kind of the other thing that was weird about when you really look at those back to back, there are a decent number of touch points. They actually just took straight out of the, that same generation when it launched into the current one. They just didn't look like they ever belonged together with the old part. So you had, you know, nice switches next to weird switches and nice textures next to you know, blah Nissan Versa textures. And it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the Nissan Versa for Nissan Versa pricing. If you're $11,000, great, fantastic material, right? But if you're charging ninety dollars to $100,000 for those interiors, like you can get in the heavy duty lineup of trucks, then that's a big problem. Um, but now, and that's actually one of the, I think the things that they've done really well is that now when you look inside, uh, like the Sierra 2500 HD that I was re recently in, um, for a hundred thousand dollars, which it can get up to the interior actually feels fine for that. It doesn't feel Mercedes or BMW premium, but considering that you've had to spend a reasonable amount of money on a very expensive engine and transmission and the heavy duty frame, et cetera, I think it all, it all seems appropriate. Yeah, if this product had launched, I mean, when it launched, people said great powertrains. Uh, people said very solid structure, um, completely uncompetitive interior. I mm -hmm. think if they'd launched the fourth generation Silverado like this, they never would have suffered the ignominious distinction of being outsold by Ram. I don't think that would have happened. Yep. Um, and I think and right that now- was, That was a big thing, yeah. you know, because I mean, the pickup truck segment, and this is, I think, the proof in the pudding that proves the, 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 the theory here or the thought, is uh, you know the pickup truck segment is very brand loyal. Um, you are the most likely return customer is a pickup truck customer to that same brand. And in that one generation, uh, it looks like General Motors lost about 400 to 500,000 units of sales to, to Ram, which yeah. is a pretty big loss over that, that few years that, that, uh, that interior hung around. But now that the new interior is in the trucks, now the sales seem to be returning. So, you know, 
Chevy's back on an even keel. They aren't losing sales. The sales are increasing, et cetera. So it was a, it was a wise business decision to do that refresh. Yeah, that's definitely pulling the cookies out of the fire. Now, I've also got some vehicles that I think are kind of uh, emblematic of where we are in the life cycle of the EV automotive industry. Because if you look at the Jaguar I-PACE and you look at the Audi <laughs> Q8 e-tron, Ni mm-hmm. e-tron, you have two vehicles that were born as mediocrities. The Audi was nicely made, serene, and charged surprisingly fast, but its range was horrendous. It was 204 when it first came out in 2019. Uh, the Jaguar, because of issues with its guestimeter for the range and state of charge, uh, telematics that took minutes to boot up, that took 10, 15 seconds to respond to the touch, the Jaguar was almost unusable. Now, a lot changed for 2022 with the Jaguar. We got faster charging. We got a new PV Pro infotainment system that started up in seconds and responded to the touch instantly. Later on, we got Alexa integration. Um, It gained route assistance that could help you navigate to chargers and find them en route and even estimate the charging time based on the vehicle's capabilities and the charger capabilities. And a lot of this was just fixing the interior electronics, which was the which was the pitfall of that vehicle. You could go from 80% state of charge down to 40 in a matter of minutes with no warning. And it was disastrous. It's a decent vehicle now. It still does not have a long range, but it's a respectable vehicle if you're not driving serious miles each day. It's what yeah. it should have been at launch. And unfortunately, like an old GM product from the 90s, it's hitting its peak just as it's discontinued. Yeah. And as long as you don't need a, you know, a, a large interior, let's put it that way. I think that was yeah. probably the continues to be one of the bigger problems with the, the I-PACE uh, is that it's just a little too small on the inside. You know, I will say that the uh, the Koreans have done a good job responding to uh, feedback as well. You know, we have Hyundai and Kia that have done pretty quick refreshes on products like the Santa Fe over time uh, or just the complete abandonment of products like the Kia Borrego that was only on sale for one calendar year because they realized that the big body on frame SUV era was over right as they designed a big body on frame SUV. Uh, but then we have other car companies that, that uh, you know, are not quite so nimble and they will just let the products die on the vine. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Jaguar is it's a mess. Everything about Jaguar is a mess. If you've seen so many product about faces in the last 10 years that you've got whiplash, that's Jaguar. Sinking sales, a lack of reason for being now that they sell trucks and Land Rover sells trucks side by side, which one are you going to buy? Of course, you're going to buy a Land Rover. But the I-PACE became a much better vehicle. It even picked up a few miles of range. The telematics are better. The navigation's better. The interface is better. The hardware powering the software, the software on top of it, it's a lot better. It'll accurately estimate how much further the vehicle can go. It's a really nice, sporty offbeat weirdos car. If you're like me and you buy things emotionally, you can now justify buying an iPACE, not on objective terms, but it's no longer the liability it was. Yeah. The Audi Q80 trend has actually become a desirable vehicle. And the number one reason for that is for 2024, it just gains a lot more range, just a much bigger battery, much longer range. And there's not a whole lot of changes other than that slightly faster charging. It's just that it's been renamed to give people a better sense of how big it is, because before people thought it was Q5 sized when realistically it's between like, well, Q5 and Q7. Right. And, you know, I think that that has helped the desirability and the appearance of Q8. 
it has done nothing theoretically for its sales, though. Um, you know, sales are pretty down in the U.S. The thing that I, I look at is I look at the original range of the e-tron when it came out. It was 204 miles EPA and it was declared a disaster. But it had wonderful th things. It had double sealed doors. It had extraordinary noise, vibration, harshness, mitigation. It had a charging system that while not nominally rated terribly high, 150 max, it would still be charging at 50 kilowatts at like 97, 98% yeah, yeah. state of charge. It usable, of yeah, stuff. good solid usable charging. And it's one of the only EVs with a spare tire. So if you just want a spare tire, that's, that's a good way to go. Yeah, and so now if you get a Q8 e-tron Sportback Ultra, it's got a 300 mile range. So you look at that progression mm -hmm. from where it started to where it is now, and yes, it will charge a bit faster. It's it's up to 170 now with a sustained high peak. I think that's a really appealing choice. If you don't need to interstate road trip your Tesla and use the superchargers, this is now something you can buy in good conscience over a competing SUV from Tesla or Mercedes-Benz or BMW. This this is now a credible offering. Yeah, and it's. I think it's a solid choice. I think the tricky bit, bit with the Q8 e-tron is that you could also get a GV70 if you want something yeah. more traditional. Uh, and GV70 has been doing really well as far as its sales so far because it's about 10 grand less. It's only a tiny bit smaller on the inside and it's way faster. Uh, the range is not great, but it charges even faster. So um, I would say that I think that's probably why Q8 sales even though it's a much better car than it was before, they haven't really uh, done what I think Audi would like it to do sales-wise. And, and I don't think it's going to. I think Audi has a lot of very duplicative-looking SUVs. It confuses people. A vehicle that doesn't succeed out of the gate and launches as a niche product to begin with, it's very difficult to gain momentum yeah. the way the Chevy Bolt did. The Bolt's yeah. another good example of a vehicle that got a lot better. Interiors, electronics got more range, less propensity to catch fire. Uh, the Bolt EUV was the best Bolt yet. And, you know, frankly, they mm -hmm. killed it right off as it hit its peak. Yeah. I'm interested in seeing what happens to the VW ID4 as they ramp up Chattanooga production, because I think that's a vehicle that could eventually wind up on this list if they fix the telematics. Yeah. It does not appear that Volkswagen is going to be making major changes to the telematics because we're still seeing new Volkswagens come on board with the basically that same software and similar flaws to what people have complained about. Um, but we are also starting to see ID4s kind of build up on dealer lots. So, um, you know, it, it'll, I'm I'm curious to see what Volkswagen's long term strategy is, because if they can keep keep lowering costs and drive down ID4 to more bolt like pricing. I think the sales could go back up and that really could be the Volkswagen bug of this era for Volkswagen, at least in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that would have the ability to do that, whether or not Volkswagen wants to push that in that direction. That is, I think, a, a different, different question. Yeah. And what happened with the Bolt where it's having its best sales year in its last year, a hundred percent driven by pricing, which GM consistently yeah. lowered and then mm -hmm. it became eligible for the full tax credit. And, right. you know, that's how you get into low 20s on a brand new Chevy Bolt. Yeah. Um, and, and battery supplies that were finally starting to meet demand. So it, it honestly, it took them until this point in time to start making batteries. GM has had a, a devil of a time uh, in making batteries. Let's just put it this way. Uh, GM and their partners, I mean, they've just delayed the launch of the additional EV trucks by another year, the spin up of the next battery plant. Yeah. 
Um, we should we should clarify that some of the reporting I think around that has been a little bit inaccurate. Uh, the EVs are going to EV trucks are going to go into production in the existing plant, theoretically more or less on with the new schedule, but they were going to spin up another factory to also build EV trucks, and that factory has been delayed a year. So basically questionable production of Silverado EV and Sierra EV in the current facility. We don't know what those numbers will be like. Some availability, some deliveries there, uh, but not the production levels they wanted. Yeah, so so I totally agree with you on the ID4. With pricing, it could do what the Bolt did because the Bolt's recent success is 100% driven by that. Mm -hmm. Higher up the food chain, though, Blue Cruise. You've driven the new Blue Cruise 1.2. I think it's good to recap real quick. What's the difference between autonomy, hands-off, and eyes-off? And where does Blue Cruise sit? Yeah, so right now we only have a very limited number of eyes-off the, uh, sorry, hands-off the wheel steering systems. And this is something, an argument I get into people with all the time. Um, you know, there's the, well, you know, my daughter just bought a new Tesla. It's fantastic. She doesn't have to drive anywhere. The car drives for her. And I'm like, please tell your daughter or your son or whoever is driving your car to put the hands back on the wheel. Cause that is absolutely not that system. Um, the only eyes off or sorry, hands off. Cause there is only one eyes off system. Let's cover that one first. The only eyes off the road system is the new Mercedes one, only limited access highways and relatively low speeds, oddly enough. So on some of the new Mercedes models, you'll be able to get that soon. It's going to start with the S-Class, um, and uh, or is it the EQS? You might remember that one. It's, it's going to be the EQS. because yeah, It's an expensive Mercedes yeah. nobody's going to buy. Exactly. Very expensive. Tech Eyes, Right. You can, you can watch TV while the car does the driving under these circumstances. Um, not anything over about 45 miles an hour. And only so in California and Nevada. Yes. Um, and there are still rules that are unclear about that because Mercedes wants to put teal lights on the outside. So that way the cops will know that it's driving the car so that way you don't get pulled over because the car was driving and you were YouTubing and supposedly you're supposed to be able to do that, but the cop didn't know. Any rate, that's, that's the only one. Then we have a, a series of hands off the wheel steering assistance systems where your eyes are on the road, you're engaged in the driving process, but the car is only doing the steering the braking and the accelerator pedal for you. The best in this bunch is Super Cruise as far as the way that it drives and stability in the lane, et cetera, there. Uh, that is a full production product. You can go buy one. We then have Blue Cruise from Ford and Lincoln. It used to be called Active Glide on the Lincoln. They decided to call it all Blue Cruise. We have the Nissan Pro Pilot Plus whatever widget available only in the Aria. And then we have the Lexus Teammate system available only in the Lexus LS in the nosebleed section, expensive trims as well. Uh, that's basically it for that series of systems. We then have Tesla full self-driving, which is in that same vein, but Tesla kind of wants to still call it a beta product. So depending on how you want to look at it, you can buy it. Everybody actually has access to it, even though they're calling it a beta. But that is the same level of autonomy as Super Cruise with a few doodads tossed in. So that has the party trick of being able to summon the vehicle uh, that has the ability to take exits and turn left and right in ways that Super Cruise will not. Uh, whether or not you should be doing that, that is a whole separate conversation. But that's that product. And that's the you know expensive $15,000 option one. Uh, regular autopilot, hands on the wheel. Regular Bluetooth, or sorry, Blue Cruise, or sorry, uh, regular adaptive cruise control with lane centering, hands on the wheel. So Hyundai Driving Assistant, 
regular adaptive cruise control with lane centering, Acura watch, whatever you want to call those systems, and autopilot, those are all the same level of autonomy. So hands on the wheel is what you're supposed to be doing there. So now with Blue Cruise, big changes. The first version was sort of like an undercooked product. There were a lot of disengagements. They were sudden. They were jarring. When it did stay in the lane, it had a tendency to ping pong. I understand the biggest change with Blue Cruise 1.2 is just that there's a lot less of this. Yeah. So, you know, the pasta has been in the pot a little bit longer, but it's still al dente. So uh, it's not going to be as smooth as Super Cruise. It's not going to do the same it's not going to do lane changes as smoothly and as efficiently as super cruise it's not as available in quite as many miles of roadway and the bigger thing that i think people are going to notice is that it still feels like someone's learning to drive here and there the way that it's going to interact with the lane it still ping pongs a little bit uh, it now will move over slightly in the lane if there's a larger vehicle someone's encroaching on your lane it's going to move over a little bit the disengagements, I think, could still be done better. So my big complaint with Blue Cruise is the car does not bing or ding or make any sound when Blue Cruise is not available anymore. So the way that this disengages is, and this is kind of, I think, a special flaw with eye monitoring. The eye monitoring system is making sure you're looking at the road. So you can't be looking at the instrument cluster. You have to be looking at the road. But if you're looking at the road, you can't see that the instrument cluster has now gone from blue to white, which is your only indication that Blue Cruise is not bluing anymore for you. Um, and then you're just cruising along with just the aggressive lane centering. And then at some point, it's going to say, hey, you need to put your hands back on the wheel. And it's going to give you an auditory uh, alert at that point in time. But that is not when the car actually wants you to put your hands on the wheel. It wants you to put your hands on the wheel when it goes from blue to white, not 15 seconds later when you've you know, hit the barrier and spun off. So here's the question now. If you have Blue Cruise 1.2, or if you're looking to buy a car next year from Ford, there is about to be a huge expansion of this technology across Ford and Lincoln model lines. Do I get an upgrade to 1.3 if I already have the hardware and software for 1.2? And if I'm buying a 2024 model year vehicle, am I just going to get 1.3, which is going to have fewer disengagements still? Yes. Am I Basically, yes. So the hardware remains the same. Uh, they're ramping up its availability. So pretty much all F-150s, limited exceptions. So the, the fleet models, the very base models that are, won't have Blue Cruise, everything else will be Blue Cruise equipped in the F-150 lineup. So basically, they're going to be shifting about 600,000 cars a year or so that will have the ability to have this level of autonomy on board. Whether or not people activate it with the subscription, that is unclear. We'll see how, how willing people are to pay this. Um, part of the reason that Ford is able to do this is that the Blue Cruise system is a little bit less complex than Super Cruise. The sensors are not quite as sensitive. There aren't quite as many sensitive or sensors as there are in Super Cruise. And uh, they're using a different kind of data set without the LiDAR mapping um, to the same level of accuracy that we find in the Super Cruise system. So that's part of why Super Cruise is a little bit more expensive and a little bit less available. Um, I would say, though, that without some structural changes to the software, you know, an actual, an audible alert that the system has disengaged or making the heads-up display standard, because that really improves the functionality of Blue Cruise. When there's a heads-up display like there is in the Lincolns, you can see that that display says, hey, I'm disengaging, you need to take over, because 
that's the only way you'll know other than looking at the screen. People want to see a more in-depth explanation of this with pictures. Where can they go to find out more about autonomy and Blue Cruise? Yeah, be sure and find the video on the Auto Buyer's Guide channel. We show you exactly how it works and the uh, heads-up display and why I think that is a critical feature. I'm Tim. He's Alex. And thanks for driving with us. See you later.